welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Welcome to the Madden America podcast. I'm Richard Sears, science writer for Madden America, here today with Dr. Alana Mountian. Dr. Mountian is the author of Cultural Ecstasies, Drugs, Gender, and the Social Imaginary, an exploration of discourses around drug use, gender, and drug policy. She's currently working on a book that'll be published later by Rutledge about otherness and mental health, focusing on immigration, drug use, and transsexuality. Dr. Mountian is also a postdoctoral lecturer and researcher at the University of Sao Paulo and Manchester Metropolitan University. Welcome, Dr. Mountian, and thank you for making time to talk with us today. Thank you. Uh, so we're just going to jump right into the questions here. So first... Um, can you just tell us a bit about what brought you to this corner of the discipline? Um, how did you end up researching uh, drug use and gender? Well, I am also a psychoanalyst, and I've started working there of drug use through a clinical practice in a in-treatment uh, service. So from there, I've done my master's. This is in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, Brazil. From there, I did my master's degree uh, on drug use, focusing also and learning about the, the policies around drug use in Manchester, in the UK, at Manchester Metropolitan University with Dr. David Skidmore. And in 1998, <laughs> I've met the group called Discursunit, which I am also a member since then, and this group was coordinated, in, it is still coordinated by uh, Ian Parker and Erica Berman. Erica Berman was my supervisor for my PhD, and this is a group that works with subjectivity, language, Foucauldian studies, psychoanalysis, critical theories, and feminist and post-colonial and decolonial theories. And Erica Berman is a feminist. She, her, her research was also very much part of my interest. And I started to question how ideas about drugs and drug use impact regarding gender. There is no neutrality thinking on gender and the intersections between gender, race, and class. And that was my doctorate. It was also this book that I've published. And from there, I think a number of uh, different areas converged, met, when I, when I started studying these courses on drug use. So this is an area that relates to many different areas, from health, economics, uh, morality, gender, race, and class, and age, and disability, and so on. After I finished this uh, thesis, I was invited to do another research on young immigrants, refugees, and also asylum seekers in the north of Manchester as well, looking at this group and drug use, which brought another number of <laughs> questions. And so this is a bit how I, I came to this field of work and, and research. 
Um, so I wonder if you can speak to us a bit about the the disease model of addiction, the kind of the big one in psychiatry right now. Um, yeah. Just yeah. Where where did that kind of come from? Well, throughout my my research for my PhD, I came I came in contact with a number of different theories and perspectives on drug use that actually made me think and realize how specific discourses operate concerning drug use. And these discourses, they, they come to life, let's say, and they, they turn into a specific way of thinking about drug use and taking drug use and understanding drug use. The way that psychiatry and our societies psychology as well, think about drug use and mental health has changed throughout the years. During this research, I came across uh, some studies that I'm going to mention now. So one it's uh, from Berridge and Edwards, that they wrote a book called Opium and the People. And in this book, they highlight the changes in the views about opium use in England and how this relates to uh, a series of different actions in a time thinking about the 19th century to the 20th century, this this period as well, uh, where specific discourses coming from medical discourses that medicine was establishing itself also as the institution we we have now, Uh, religious discourses through the temperance movement and the governmental policies around drug use, because the drugs, they were not not illegal, the drugs that came to uh, be illegal, and regulations started to be established there in this period. In the beginning of the 20th century, we started to have a number of new regulations and then until the prohibition of specific drugs that we have now and the regulation of other drugs because we have the classification of uh, medical drugs, of, of who can prescribe the drugs and so on. But up to then, one point that the authors, they highlight, it's how the opium use was very much disseminated and part of the cultural habits of the societies, used mostly for medical reasons, because people were also self-medicating. So at this point, with this emergence and, conver- and, and and how these different discourses, the medical, the religious, the legal discourses met, we have a change in the way of looking at uh, drugs and looking at opium in this case from a habit, a cultural habit, to a disease, which is central point for research and, of course, treatment and drug policy. It's a specific way of understanding drug use. 
So in your view, is that kind of model of addiction, is it, is it accurate and also equally as important, I guess, is, is it helpful to, to maybe service users or just people in general? When we talk about drugs and other moral issues, it's very hard to, to take um, a perspective that does not oscillate between good and evil, good and bad. So in this way, I think it's very important to recognize that some people, they have a specific way of taking drugs that might talk about a specific suffering that they feel. So I, I do not, and I don't think it's also helpful for us to ignore the suffering of, of, of some people about the way they relate to drugs because people do not take drugs or develop a relationship with drugs in the same way. So considering this, the problem of the, this view, and this also tackles a number of debates in psychiatric diagnostics, it's how, how this diagnosis also become a way of looking to the other, of looking and psychologizing or, or psychiatrizing or individualizing the subject or individualizing the problem as if it is of the subject and not about the relationship of the subject and their context where they live doesn't take into account a number of other issues that the person is um, implied or that she relates to. Now, and the definition of addiction itself, so taking addiction as a disease theory about a specific way of using drugs, the definition of addiction itself, it's not accurate. We have different, def different definitions about addiction. And they are applied in a way that become that does not actually at all or better. It risks not listening to the subject, not listening to the person. So in this sense, it separates the person from the the, per, the, the physician, the, the psychiatrist. So there are many debates about still very important about the diagnosis itself because also they try to make some tables determining the quantity of drugs used, for example, to uh, define if this person is drug addict. Nonetheless, we have also cultural differences in the way that people take drugs, for example, alcohol. Alcohol, it's a drug that I find particularly important to think about drug use. Alcohol, it's not an illegal drug. And we can see the way that this uh, substance has been used throughout the years for all types, for medical reasons, uh, religious reasons, um, recreational reasons, and how people in different context use in different ways. And, and I think it's useful to think about the drug itself, the substance, that he says that at the same time 
a remedy and a poison. I think this brings a view that opens up to look at how the relationship between the subject and this object, the drug. There is an attempt to only to remove the poison part of it and to stay only with the qualities that those are, are, are looking for. Nonetheless, I think still to understand that this works and operate together, it's very important for us to look at this relationship and to look also to the drug policies. Because if we analyze the discourses about drug policies, it seems that the medical drugs are good and they don't produce any, any other effect. As we know, they do. And the same with the drugs that are considered illegal. They, they have all the, the evil also impl already implied into them. So in this way, again, research and treatment becomes a field uh, that it is still required a lot of debate because of this moral opposition that it's immediately imp implied when we talk about drugs. So you mentioned a good bit in that answer, kind of addiction is this psychiatric diagnosis, mm -hmm. this, uh, this way that we, this label that we kind of give to people. In your view, do you think labeling that way is helpful to, I mean, to communities in particular, to service users, but particularly to marginalized communities? I think one important thing was always to have in mind, it's when we have this view, this when we talk addiction comes from a medical perspective, it's a medical classification. I always think it's important to to look at how these medical uh, views and discourses operate in our everyday life. So they, they are not only confined within the hospitals. They also, these uh, classifications, they, they come to be also a way that people think about themselves. So this is one thing about the subjectivity that it is produced through a medical and psychological discourse on people. At the same time, the way that this labeling works and operates, it's very important for service users and for marginalized communities and also to specific groups that are often positioned in a marginalized way in these courses. So I think when we look, and, and we have many divisions that operate within this, uh, the way that these um, specific discourses used and implemented. So we can see divisions between North and South, we can see the divisions between race. We can see the differences between uh, when we talk about gender and sexuality. And we, we have different production of drug policies according to these ideas that are pre-established. Pre and we could see these throughout our history 
and let's say the history about drug use from the classification of drug use of drugs that imply a prohibition and a specific moral way of using to and in this uh, in this trajectory we could see how specific groups were targeted um, some authors like Marekon, for example, she was talking about these intersections, for example, between women, how women were seen in the, for example, in the 1930s and drug use. She was talking about Chinese people, how uh, discourses on drugs uh, could function in a way that can, could marginalize even more specific, this group, for example. Also, in this way, in this sense, there is the work of Nancy Campbell. She talks about these ideas about the crack mother, the mothers who use crack, and the specific ideas that are related to, to them. We, they were particularly demonized, they were marginalized, so this produce policies, this produce a specific way of ordering processes, mm -hmm. of putting the person as the other, and for the person it has effects. Yeah. And we are talking about drugs that are considered illegal, but and, and also if, if we talk about the north-south, there is a difference between production and, and consumers and but also we can think about this regarding uh, legal drug use so which drugs are um, accepted for specific groups and many times prescribed for specific groups for example a woman who takes alcohol uh, she might be seen in a specific way at the same time women still are the group that are most prescribed antidepressants worldwide. So how does it work? I think this is a, a crucial debate, crucial debate. And we need a, um, an important space to think about these ways of understanding drug use and not excluding also the prescriptions that uh, work in specific groups and specific ways. On this issue, I would like to mention the work of Elisabetta Tori. She has produced a number of texts regarding uh, this visibility and invisibility of women and drugs and thinking also about the prescription drugs. So yeah, it's it's not uncommon in the United States for people seeking mental health treatment to end up in emergency rooms. We do a lot of mental health triage in emergency rooms here. And part of the mental health screening includes a drug test. In my experience, people that are that test positive for any drug that they haven't been prescribed, they'll oftentimes get that label of substance use disorder applied to mm. them, um, despite how they answer questions about substance use. The, the idea is kind of you can't take this person's word seriously because they are on the substance that's not prescribed. 
Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that person in particular may be effective. Somebody that's not just diagnosed as, you know, in that whole disease model of addiction, but that's misdiagnosed within that model. This is a very important question because it talks about how the medical classification, particularly when done in this way, uh, silence people. And, and we can see this happening particularly for people who are looking for help, for example. This is where we see very clearly also the moral ideas attached to the word drugs. So it also shows the discursive position that the person, the subject, occupies in society. So we can see in lay discourses in our everyday life, and they, they come even in medical uh, establishments, let's say in medical services, in a very uh, quick way. So it's always very crucial, very important to look at the way that these labeling affect and affect people. Because the problem of mislabeling is already a problem itself. On the other hand, the labeling has effects to the subject. Because this is a mental illness, the label of mental illness occupy uh, still, it's still the case, occupy a very, uh, also, let's put it in this way, a marginalized position in society. And this person carries this. In my research, I think that there are many, again, many debates about this, about the effects of this labeling, how it is done, and, and what are the criteria used for the label itself, because it's not always clear, as we have also different definitions. And we have many authors that talk about this. I'm thinking now about Ivan Illich, even Thomas But in my research, I found very interesting. I was, I could interview drug users. I have, as I said before, I have worked in and drug use services, also in different ones. But I could also, for the interview, for the thesis, interview uh, people who take drugs in different contexts, for my master's degree as well. And I was very much interested about the way that people understand themselves regarding this label of drug use, what it means to be drug use. And for the subjects I've interviewed, they were talking about this labeling in very different ways. So for those who were not in treatment, for example, who did not see themselves as drug users, and, and I'm talking about drugs in general, not only legal drugs, also alcohol or the drugs. They did not see themselves as drug users. They actually saw themselves as citizens. Some of them were talking about citizenship. No, I'm a citizen. Other ones who were in treatment, and particularly in institutions that are closed institutions, like doing their detox, they were talking about them themselves as drug users, and they were 
um, thinking about this label in a very institutionalized and medical way. So they were talking about themselves as we could hear the doctors talking about them. Other ones interesting, interesting that I found is that some that they were in also in medical treatment, but they were using the label in specific ways according to, to the person they were talking to. Uh, to uh, when they were talking about drug use to a doctor, they would tell them, oh, I'm a drug user. When they were talking uh, to their colleagues, they were not talking about themselves using this label. So that was, uh, that was something that caught my attention. Other people, they, they were talking about how this label could help them to identify their problems. Other ones were talking about how this label separated them from their families and their work. In some, in some contexts, we could see how this label is used that ends up marginalizing people and communities and groups and particular groups of people. Summarize, I think it's very important always to look at the effect of labeling. So quite a few authors, um, and actually some people that I've interviewed for Mad in America, um, have pointed to psychiatry's past complacency in oppressing women. You actually mentioned it earlier, um, kind of the, the most medicated group globally. So historically, we've kind of dismissed a lot of women's concerns as hysteria, um, kind of cho choosing to medicate or in, in extreme cases, even lobotomize these women rather than kind of hear what they were worried about. Um, I've also read recently about a diagnosis given by medical professionals in the United States called dreptomania. Um, this was a diagnosis that was given to people that fled from slavery. And this was a diagnosis mostly given in an effort to make recapturing those people a morally correct action, right? I'm wondering if you've seen similar themes in your research, this kind of, almost like an abuse of power, right? Um, mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you've seen those themes in your research and um, yeah, yeah if, if we're still doing this today. Yeah. This book I'm, I'm writing now, it's very much talking about this, the, the effects of the labeling, how the label itself was produced throughout the years and how was considering or not these specific social categories? So when we talk about gender, sexuality, race, class, age, yeah. we can see how uh, these categories uh, were seen by medicine and psychology as well, by let's say by a medical discourse, and was we can see when they meet specific psychiatric disorders. Uh, the elderly, the older people are also very much medicated with prescribed drugs. So we can see how age operates here. When we look at the research on uh, immigration, for example, we see concerns about how are people being seen as, let's say, framed in particular ways uh, as having 
for example, mental health disorders, rather than understanding, or rather than the understanding that we can see the person, the subject within their context, because, well, to, to immigrate requires many things. So we don't know. So we can see they are suffering, but I'm always concerned that this is something that, anyway, we talk a lot about the quick diagnosis of, for example, immigrants. And also this converges and meets with different ideas about health and mental health, that people do not have the same ideas about health and mental health. So in the work with immigrants, we could see, for example, uh, this difference. And I'm not saying that all the immigrants are the same because the immigrants also come from different contexts. Mm -hmm. So this is interesting how also the idea about health and mental health also is dislocated or can be dislocated in this encounter between the other and us, in inverted commas, or the medical discourses, because these other ideas can challenge also our ways of, for example, diagnosing, labeling, and or framing people in specific ways. Um, in the research with young people and reducing the north of England in Manchester that I've produced, they didn't use illegal drugs. They didn't use any drugs. Um, so you mentioned a good bit there, like um, immigrants and how they're treated and how, you know, completely different perspective and how that can kind of lead to misdiagnosis sometimes. Um, do you think that's kind of the, the group that's most at risk for this stuff right now? Is there is there another group out there that's kind of more at risk than than immigrants in general? I think when we're talking about immigration, uh, also, but also we can amplify for the groups. We're talking about these intersections between race, gender, class, sexuality, and right. so on. So we can see how specific groups were medicalized and were diagnosed throughout the years. Mm -hmm. Black people, Mexican people, um, I think we need to look in, in also locally to yeah. see how our groups are, are, are thought about and how this um, process of minoritization, of ordering the order happens. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting to look at the process of labeling, of classifying people using a psychiatric diagnosis, but also it's very interesting to look at the history of this diagnosis. So homosexuality was a mental illness until very recent. Transsexuality still an issue. So we can see how this labeling affects and has effects on people. So how transsexual, transgender people work with, with these diagnoses, it's, it's a very important issue. How the quick associations, between discursive associations between 
uh, women and madness and hysteria and so on, it still happens, how this reverberates, it's, it's crucial, how sexuality is often uh, not accounted for, for example, regarding the LGBT phobia that they suffer, it's crucial. Yeah. How black people in different areas, what's uh, the groups that are um, marginalized, uh, are seen, it's crucial as well. It's fundamental to look at. So um, it's hard to say what, what is the group that it's going to be the most uh, prescribed, but mm-hmm. we have to look locally uh, in a, let's say, situated way uh, the groups that we are talking about and see how um, these labels uh, too easily or too quickly pushed into them. And this is not to say that there is no suffering, but it's a completely different way. I think it goes back to your question about the mislabeling and labeling. <laughs> So you've mentioned earlier this kind of um, distinction that we make between um, legal and illegal drugs. Um, I think there's a distinction that we make um, a lot of times, at least in the discipline of psychiatry, between kind of therapeutic and non-therapeutic drugs and what that looks like. So it may be the case that the substances that we decide to make illegal are ultimately kind of arbitrary and more of a, a political decision than a practical one. Um, I'm wondering how you would respond to that idea, given given your research um, around addiction and and um, kind of marginalized communities. Yes, I think that we can see the convergence. Let's say when the 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 meeting between these three major pillars of discourse: the 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 legal discourses, the medical and the religious discourses. I think the the moral part of it cannot be taken out of this equation, let's say. There, there was, even during this period for to, to classify what drugs are legal and illegal, there are lots of different talks. Mm-hmm. And we can see how these uh, discourses were operating, particularly the moral views of specific groups and the political views of specific drugs and, and also of, of, uh, of politics itself. Uh, we can see the medical discourses in there. But what happened after the classification and prohibition of certain drugs is that people did not stop taking drugs. And we have now, when we talk about drug use, we cannot separate from the the legal matters and the criminalized uh, view of drug use. So we have actually an increase of violence and a decrease in information and an increase in drug use and different forms of drug use and a lack of research uh, about the use of drugs, not only for recreational use, but also for medical use. Research with drugs that are considered illegal, it's much harder to do. So we, we have 
lack of information of drugs. We have uh, users also, they are put in risk because they don't know the quality of the drug they are taking. We have the crime and violence associated. So I think it's very important to look again at the effects of the prohibition. And this we see directly into the medical and the psychological services as well, not only from the labeling, but also from also regarding the way that people uh, take drugs that has changed. So you've kind of mentioned in that answer that prohibition may not be the most effective way to kind of stop drug drug use, right? Like prohibition doesn't seem to really cur- even curtail it. it. Right. Yes. It didn't stop. Right. So I'm wondering if in your research, you've come across anything that's, that is helpful for people that may see themselves as addicts. Like what, what helps people when they're kind of struggling with that? First, I think it's important to understand how the person sees herself himself regarding this label, how it works, because it can actually work in a way that uh, it's not helpful also for their suffering. It can increase their suffering, for example. For other people, as I said, they, they thought it was useful or it can be useful to think about themselves in a medicalized way. Interesting. Right. One thing that I, I, I saw uh, in my research, but also in my practice, is the importance of looking at the relationship between the subject and the drug. What's the meaning of this uh, relationship, let's say, how, how the person relates to the drug? And we cannot look at the subject disregarding the context and how the social categories operate for the subject. And another point that I find important that uh, people who work with harm reduction talks about is the moral view about drug use has to be questioned when they work with drug users or people better than this, with people who take drugs. Because it's very important to understand what it means for the subject and how the subject sometimes doesn't... The drug use is not that important. <laughs> or sometimes it is, but to know... It's important to question or suspend or, or, or think about the moral view that it's already implied in the work with drug users. So you're working now um, on a new book about mental health and otherness. Um, and I'm wondering if you could just talk to, to us a little bit about the connection between the two, um, mental health and otherness. Uh, we've, we've talked a good bit about labeling and how that kind of creates it. Um, but in addition to that, what other ways um, does psychiatry kind of contribute to, to this creation of otherness? Well, this book, it's a kind of result of these past 20 years of research on drug use with immigrants. That It, it has been an area of research that I've been developing for the past also 10 years. And my research on transgender uh, people uh, and also on 
gender and sexuality issues, particularly, well, throughout my research, I was looking at these issues in intersection. But in Brazil, I was um, looking at how at specific issues regarding uh, LGBT rights and transsexual and transgender. And in the case of Brazil, actually, with travestis, which is a specific uh, self-identification of Brazil regarding transgender, uh, transsexual women. I've done two research uh, projects concerning them, one regarding their access to education and the other about older travestis, uh, which is not, not that common as they, they suffer uh, the transphobia, it's very high. So I kind of thought about this publication. It's going to have essays on these three different groups. And what I could see, it's how specific groups are put in the position of the other in this course. And I could see, so from the effects of the psychiatric labels and psychiatric diagnosis on specific groups, I was also very much interested in how deconstructing the discourse of psychiatry, we can see also how psychiatry itself, it's also situated, it's also contextualized as well as psychology. So there is a tendency of looking at psychology and psychiatry as an universal viewpoint about mental health and health and people, which is not. And there is always a risk of reproducing specific discourses about the other that puts the other in, 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 the, in a more marginalized position. I'm very much interested, now I'm thinking and looking at the encounter between the other and psychiatry. How is this encounter then? Can the other speak? I think this is the question that Spivak talks about. Can the subaltern speak? And I'm looking at can the other or can the subaltern speak in, in, in a in the medical services, for example, how we listen to them. How is the order produ produced even within the services? And there are some questions here. First, on the quick diagnosis that I think it's important to look at. Also, we can look at how um, the context of the subject and how these uh, specific social categories are many times ignored or not taken into account by uh, health practitioners. So, for example, the effects of the transphobia in the subject, it's crucial to be accounted in, in health treatment. And sometimes we were seeing even the opposite. Places that were there for, to treat people, to help people, that were in need. Sometimes we're finding even transphobic perspectives in health services. 
which has an effect on the subject. And one of the effects we saw is that they will not go to the hospitals when they need. So we see the obstacles that these groups find to access health services. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about something you've learned working on your books that a lot of us maybe don't know and maybe we could benefit from knowing. I have to say I have learned from the people I've interviewed and I've encountered and also the groups that participated in research, in, I've said in England, but also in Brazil, they were bringing a perspective that it's not always found in medical books, let's say, or psychological books, even in the lectures. They were talking about themselves and, and these ordering processes that they encounter. What I find important here is how I could learn something about their suffering and what they were saying, but at the same time, this could question, these encounters, let's say, could question our views on how to listen to the other. This is something that I am, I've been working the past years, thinking, how can we listen? Because we are also situated. This is particularly important, looking at these relations between gender, race, class, age, disability, and other categories that appear out of balance, let's say. Um, so this will be our be our last question here. Um, and I'm wondering if you can recall any backlash you faced around your your work in particular. You've done kind of some some stuff like you have a critical perspective about things. You've done some work with um, with like drug use and trans communities and things like that. And is there any significant backlash you can recall? I don't know if it's a backlash. I think the critical work itself produce debate. And the debate is crucial for our work. So sometimes the, the debate can be hard. I think uh, this is an area of research that it, it's very important also to be funded so, and to have uh, more space in academic, medical, psychological uh, areas because it's crucial for the practice. Well, all right. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Alana Mountain. Her book, Cultural Ecstasies, Drugs, Gender, and the Social Imaginary is currently available for purchase. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.